This is the Humerian Health Podcast. Spilling our guts for the well-being of yours. This is the Humerian Health Podcast. Uh, this is Dr. Sean Benzinger here again with uh, Amy Baker. We're back again after um, all the events of this year. and we're just 2020. 2020 really is. But uh, we're continuing on with a very special guest, Dr. Clifton Medor. Uh, he is the author of The Little Book of Dr. Rules. Now, isn't that interesting <clears throat> that we finally get a book that doctors actually have rules, right? I, I mean, know, that's right? nice to hear. <laughs> no, it was. It, it actually came across our desk, and <clears throat> we reviewed it, and we just thought this is exactly what should be happening to gain uh, patient confidence and also have um, specificity rules for doctors for them to reflect on. So, first of all, Doctor Meadows, uh, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate you being on. Thank you for having me. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about just why you would write a book like this. Well, it goes back to my origins in practice. If I won't bore you to go into that in some detail, I think it explains it. Yeah. That agree, agree with you? Yeah, that's Yeah, great. yeah. So uh, what, just tell us a little bit about the origins. What's your specialty? Yeah. What, what was your training? Well, that's a complicated specialty, so let me tell you the story, and it'll lead me into what that specialty is. I was trained in endocrinology, gotcha, but I deviated off into general primary medicine mm-hmm. because that intrigued me more. Mm-hmm. In 1962, I entered practice with a senior physician who was much older than me. He fell ill with pneumonia, and so I covered his practice. And I was surprised to find that nearly a third of the patients did not have the disease he had diagnosed. In fact, they did not have any definable medical disease. Oh, boy. They had causes for their complaints and symptoms, but no medical disease. Okay. I moved to Birmingham then and to the University of Alabama and found the same phenomenon coming in from across the state. Many, many patients who carried false diagnoses of disease. So that led me to a 50-year track focusing on patients who had symptoms of unknown origin. Mm. I call it SUO. Mm-hmm. Oh. My credo became there's not a medical disease behind every symptom, but there's a definable cause if the doctor and the patient listen and make careful observations. So that led me to the book and to recording these uh, thoughts as rules. Well, that's wonderful. And let me ask you this. What... When you uh, went through that the first time, that probably was a bit of horrifying, wasn't it? Because you come out of training, you, you kind of know what, uh, how to classify a diagnostic, uh, you know, differential diagnoses and coming down with the diagnosis and, and hopefully treating and encouraging a person. Why do you think they were coming up with uh, a third of the patients and, and actually labeling them with conditions that really didn't fit? I think it's because the technology is so visual. The MRI, the CAT scan, yeah. the EKG, X-rays, all X-rays, everything is visual. If they don't find a visual cause, they assign a, a non, non-visual disease to it. They just make up one that's close enough to get by with it. Okay, so and, is it based upon just symptomatology, that, or is it yes. because the patient's saying, hey, I got something? I mean, is it also some comfort that the doc has found something and they're, you know, giving them the blue pill or whatever it is? Yes, they, they like a label. 
and the label is once it, once the label is given, it's it's not reversible. That's uh, that's exactly. It follows your whole life. That's right. You're right. Very difficult to remove a false label. Yep, that is such such a good point. So you were thinking that the GP maybe was helping the individual um, deal with something and then concentrate on managing it, but you're saying, well, that's not even the disease, so we're wasting their time and money? Yes, exactly. And the reason it's hidden is the patient has a name. The doctor has a name for the disease. It can't get worse because it doesn't exist. (laughs) That's called a successful treatment protocol. (laughs) Yes. It's 100% success. Exactly. Yeah. It will always be a mild form of the disease. Right. And it, it does not get spotted until that patient sees a second doctor who uncovers the error. But it's too late then. Mm-hmm. So you're stuck with it. I gotcha. Okay. That makes sense, Amy. Yeah. Well, so in the book, in general, you have different sort of sections of these, the rules or the wisdom that you've gained kind of gathered together based on different themes. Can you talk about maybe some of your most impactful or favorite sort of themes or ideas of the, the rule sets um, that you've put together? Yes. Let me, let me give you what I think are the four big categories of patients who had symptoms but no disease. One is they're eating, drinking, or rubbing on a substance. There's a substance in it. I had a patient who had diarrhea from Crest toothpaste. What? That's unusual. <laughs> wow, interesting. I had another who had recurrent pneumonia from an insecticide spray. Huh. And on and on and on. Yeah, and, uh, that's, that's so big it's stuff. A, and those substances are out of consciousness. Mm-hmm. They're unconscious contacts. Mm-hmm. They've never thought about it. Mm-hmm. So I use a diary. I have the patient keep a diary recording every day what was going on when the symptom occurred. So the, the, the first thing I do is rule out all disease. I spend a good bit of time ruling out medical diseases. Uh-huh. Then I have them keep a diary recording what to eat, who they were with, what their thoughts were, uh-huh. uh, hmm. where, where were they when the symptom occurred, and on and on and on. And through the diary method, you're often able to identify a specific cause for the symptom. Huh. You know, it, big, it, you know doctor, is, just so you know, yeah. doctor, it, it sounds like you're actually being a doctor when you're doing all this. I mean, just what you just said right now, I can't tell you how many patients I see that the doc kind of sees them, they've got their seven minutes to see them, they get their diagnosis placed on them, and they leave. But the amount of, uh, or the lack of not taking enough interest in the person or having enough time, I don't know which it is, but just what you've said just now, that doesn't happen in practice very often. That's correct. That's that's frightening, right there. Just just we we haven't hit hit your first area, and I know that's not happening very often. Yeah, uh, I was fortunate when I entered academic medicine, which was 1962, 63 rather, the year after I left Selma. I was able to get an arrangement with my chief of medicine to pay me a salary, and I therefore did not have to have an income dependent on practice yeah yeah so by being on salary i could spend as long as i wanted to with each patient and i was fortunate to be and lucky to get that kind of arrangement so Mm -hmm. i think not having salaried physicians in primary care is a problem yeah uh because you see you want to see high volume 
That's right. You have to. You got you got overhead, right? Right. Yep. So you got seven, eight minutes, and everything's visual. You're almost destined to make up some diagnoses in that situation. Yeah. You you can't do a good job. And and I'm sorry, doctor. I interrupted you, but I just wanted to make that point to our listeners. Is <clears throat> it, to me, it sounds like today they're going to hear how a general practitioner, internist, and family physician should be treating them. So I, I love this. Now, you went through substance, and now we're at number two. Number two is they're in a relationship with a toxic person or a stressful person, it's a spouse, a friend, a boss, or most common is a daughter-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> hey, now. No, no, no personal experience there, I'm sure. <laughs> I didn't mean to upset you. Oh, no, you didn't. <laughs> I've been called worse. It's this fine. is so <laughs> true. No, just... And I say top of the list is a spouse. Mm. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. I, can't, I can't tell you how many uh, patients with symptoms, women in particular, with symptoms yeah. that was cured by a divorce. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, uh, <clears throat> so your script had had uh, check, divorce, and go from there. Okay, good. <laughs> All right, so toxic people, and, and uh, we're singing with that. That makes sense. How about number and three? It, it can be very, those, those toxic people can be very subtle. You have to dig it out to get them because they don't want to admit they're in that relationship. Anyway, mm-hmm. number three, not in commonality, but just number three, is it's self-inflicted. They're drinking something, taking something, burning themselves with something, injecting themselves. Yeah. They're causing the disease. And uh, there's a book out called Dying to be Sick. Mm-hmm. These are uh, Munchausen type patients who, then uh, the three or four types of self infliction. One is a psychiatric disease. Two is to get attention. Three is to get drugs or money, sort of malingering. And four is just an unknown cause. Mm-hmm. These, these are very difficult patients. And whoever uncovers the self infliction will not be the doctor. To, they, they, they moved to another doctor immediately. Yeah, absolutely. I never had any success with a self-inflicted mm-hmm. uh, patient. Mm. All right, number four. I call it illness as a way of life. These are patients who somehow or another have managed to live through their symptoms. The family responds to it. They're enabled by these symptoms. They were enabled early in childhood to have this sick. Or stay home from school, or you've got a headache, or you don't need to do anything. You know, the demands were very low on these patients, and they develop illness as a way of navigating life. Mm-hmm. They're very difficult to deal with. The family has to be engaged to do anything with them, and that's difficult because of the HIPAA laws now. Yeah. It is, isn't it? They would have to give you the right to be able to do so if they're over 18 right. years old, right? So now exactly. it even limits it further. <clears throat> so I can tell you a couple of stories about that yeah, we have time later on. Hey, give me one. I, I think I think Amy and I'd love to hear one good story yeah. about the uh, millennial. I mean, about people. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> this is yeah. why we don't let you on podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, uh, this was an older woman. She was in her 70s. She had about three or four children that were very close to her. And the psychiatrist asked me to see her because she had seizures. Well, the seizures are not ordinary seizures. These were, she would flop around the floor. I didn't see one. They described them to me. 
she would flop around the floor, get up on her feet, fall down, roll on the ball, roll on her side. And uh, every time she would have one, whatever child she was with would call all the others. They would rush the mother. Oh, mother's having a seizure. We need to get over there and take care of her. So this crowd of people would show up, mm. and they would be there, be eight or ten people. So I suggested, uh, you all don't need to rush the mother. You don't want to, you want to take care of her, but why don't you rotate who calls and let everybody know they've got a seizure going on, but just be there with mother until the seizure passes. So they did that for about a month. No change. The seizures continued. In fact, one of them said, mother starts rolling across the floor. She wants to roll until she makes contact with me. And I said, oh, goodness. Why don't you, here's a suggestion. Whoever is looking after mother, get up on the sofa, on the back of the sofa, and get away, get off the ground so she can't get you. So the seizures went on a few more weeks and then stopped. Wow. The rule there is a behavior ignored will extinguish if there's no if there's not a fixed cause for the symptom. Right. Interesting. So I talked to family, talked to family to ignore the mother's seizure, and they went away. How, how wild. That's I, interesting. You couldn't that do that with HIPAA. You could not do that with HIPAA now. Right. So think about it. We couldn't actually treat the pro- patient appropriately because of HIPAA rules. I mean, that's what we're really saying. Right. Unless she gave you approval to talk to him, I guess. I guess that right. that would be the only way, right? Yeah. So those are substantial, substantial, a uh, substantial list. Yeah. Well, and not to kind of veer us off the the topic in terms of what the different categories are, but one of the rules that you have in your book is Rule Number One Eighty Six, and it talks about, <laughs> and it kind of goes along with the story that you just told. I think a little bit. All patients will lie about something. Some patients will lie about everything, and right. I guess we're that's in very interesting perspective Um, you know how did you come to know or like kind of formulate that rule like what's what kind of tipped your tipped you off to that this is a pretty common patient behavior that you see they weren't on a substance they weren't in a stressful relationship they weren't self-inflicting they were making up the symptoms so they then you uncover that the symptom did not exist somehow or another later on by a test or by continued questioning. Hmm. So lying is just such a frequent pattern. I mean, many patients. Yeah. So are you saying, doctor, you kind of ruled out these type of cases based upon your four, four categories. If they're not part of four categories, they probably can't have anything. There's a fifth category. Oh yeah. What's that? I call it the hidden disease. These are chronic alcoholics who will lie in the face of being terminally ill with cirrhosis or bleeding ulcers. They will deny drinking alcohol. Hmm. Denial is a a real and irreversible thing. It's so so tough when you know they are. They know you know they are. And they're going to continue to do it until it right, kills them. Right, and, right. It, and it does. It usually takes their life and ruins their life and ruins their family's life. It's it's such a difficult, difficult situation. Yeah, so I I mean, I read this book as a as a patient, as a, as a non-doctor and a potential patient. I'm just curious, when you were thinking about writing the book, were you did you see this more as a patient education piece or a physician education piece or both? Kind of talk about... 
kind of who you hope who you hope will get this information and what sort of change you hope yeah, will happen. I wrote it purely, purely for doctors and health professionals. Okay. Guide them in developing, mainly developing rapport and how to listen. Mm-hmm. And listening is a not an easy thing. You got to watch the facial expression. You got to watch the respiratory rate. You got to watch the eye movements to know that you're making contact. If the eyes are moving in the patient, they're not listening. Mm. They're thinking. Mm-hmm. You want somebody you want them to stop thinking and pause every now and then and let them think. Talk and think, talk, think, listen, listen, talk, listen, talk. And uh, give long periods of silence. Yeah. That's... If you give a long period of silence, they're going to say something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what they say is going to be coming out of the unconscious Sometimes, not mm-hmm. often, not all the time. Mm-hmm. Which it's all buried. It's all buried in the unconscious, and you you don't want to look like you're going after the unconscious. You're just listening. Mm-hmm. That fly- what are you doing? What are you doing that you should stop doing? What are you not doing that you should be doing? The use of unspecified language is very important. Yeah. If I say, "Are you having any pain in your right?" Uh, upper ear they can only answer yes or no are you having any pain anywhere they've got to run their mind over their whole body to mm-hmm. come up with whatever pain they have yeah which so much flies in the face of kind of how i think and dr benzinger alluded to this uh, well probably stated it outright the kind of flies yeah. it kind of flies in the face of traditional medicine where it's you know, I've got six or seven minutes to talk to this person mm-hmm. and I've got to get in there, figure out, you know, what pill they need to take or if they really have a problem and then, you know, move on to my next patient. I mean, it's it almost sounds like a, a self-fulfilling prophecy that someone who reads this book as a as a practicing physician will struggle in some ways to actually implement some of these things just because of the way the healthcare system is structured. My, yeah, my suggestion there is, have a period at the end of the day where you schedule the most difficult patient. Mm, good idea. If it, run, if it runs over, you haven't lost the whole damn day. Yeah, yeah. You, you just lost 40 minutes. That's yeah. really, really smart. And here, here's what I hey, see if this makes sense uh, to you, doctor, because of your, your, um, your years of experience. What I have found is um, the family doc has abdicated all specialty work out of their office because what I heard you do is I, I heard you walking through those things that a psychologist or psychiatrist, well, not psychiatrist, usually a psychologist does with people trying to work through the mental emotional component. And I know that you are trained to do those things, but most GPs have given that up uh, and they, they don't have the time and you're investing in your patients. And I, and I fear that that's what we've lost. Uh, what is your what is your view of that? I think you're absolutely right. It's uh, and I don't know how to reverse it except by sal- putting a position on a salary, a nice salary. Yeah. And his job is to keep the uh, diagnosable diseases brought to the forefront before he refers to a specialist. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Premature referral to a specialist, they're gone. They're gonna have whatever the specialist finds. Yep. And the specialist specialist has to do the same thing, has to self-justify the reason for the referral 
to make sure. And now, who monitors the patient? Is the GP going to keep monitoring, or now does the cardiologist take over? And then you send right. to the pulmonologist. I've had people coming in; they got nine docs. They don't know what's yes. up, and the docs don't talk enough. They don't even know which drug the other one's on, and you, you right. know what I mean? It's on and on and on. And and and, and what I'm when I'm looking at your book, I'm looking at a guideline, a prevention against all this over-treatment and over-testing that never needed to be done with patients. Am I, am I overshooting this? No, you're dead on. You're dead on. The, uh, the time it takes to get to the bottom of these symptoms is very long. So I've had patients that I listen to for, oh, three or four months, once a week. I see them weekly and focus on another symptom. Mm. Can, I, can I tell you my favorite story? Yeah, please do. This is a woman who had like 35 symptoms. And I was seeing a lot of patients with multiple symptoms. And, and I'd, have, I'd list them on a piece of paper and have them sign this paper that that's all the symptoms they had. We're not going to have another symptom here. No. <laughs> We've gone through this. We've got 35 here. And I want to be sure I get every symptom down before we start looking at them. Wow. Wow. So she, she, I'd been seeing her for several weeks. And uh, she's started into a litany of symptoms and I said, wait, 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 wait. Now you got to slow down. You're going too fast for me. I'm going to talk about one symptom at a time. So if you real slow down, she didn't slow down. So I said to the nurse, bring me three chairs in here. So I got a piece of paper and one chair was head and neck. Next was upper body. The next one was lower body. And I said, Miss Jones, that wasn't her name. Miss Jones, please sit in that chair where you want to talk about that part of your body. So she started moving again, jumping around, jumping around, talking about feet here and teeth here and chest here. And I said, well, you're still jumping around. Rosie, that was the nurse. Give me two more chairs. So now we've got five chairs, head and neck, <laughs> chest, GI symptoms, bladder and feet. Right. So she started jumping around again. And so she stopped after several minutes and, and she paused. She looked at the floor, <laughs> and she started laughing hysterically, just laughing, laughing. It was one of those infectious laughs, right? Mm -hmm. I started laughing. The nurse is laughing. Three of us are laughing our head off. I had no idea why I was laughing. <laughs> that it was ridiculous. And finally, she said, you know, this is just rid ridiculous. <laughs> this, is, this, is, <laughs> this is ridiculous. I said, yeah, it's ridiculous. It sure is. <laughs> she said, well, let me tell you about that sorry husband of mine. Oh. <laughs> oh, we got it. It turned out, I think, I'm not sure of this, because I got her into marital counseling. She got a divorce, and that cleared up all the symptoms. <laughs> I, think, I think the symptoms held him at bay. Yeah. Here's a sick woman. I'm not going to abuse a sick woman. Yeah. And yeah. she learned to have symptoms. To block his attacks on her. Yeah. yeah. No, I get it. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's super powerful, though. I oh, mean, the amount my. of time it takes to really listen and to be present and mm -hmm. the creativity around how do you get somebody to focus and, and give you the information that you need. Mm -hmm. um, I guess I, I personally have not. I mean, I've had some great doctor experiences, but nothing to that level. I'm curious, mm -hmm. since you, you originally wrote this book for medical professionals, I mean, how has it been received? Have have you heard from other docs that are like, this has revolutionized their practice? Or is it more been met with like, what, you know, 
why these rules or like just talk to us a little bit about kind of how how the medical (laughs) field is responding to some of the because I pick this up as a patient and think oh that's a rule that I'm going to ask my doctor about you know and I wonder how they would (laughs) respond respond, yeah this is the fourth version of this book I wrote the first version in 1992 and at that time uh, I had difficulty with gender pronouns (laughs) so so I had to go back and revise the rules and get rid of those that were sexist I had a bunch of those that I made a mistake Mm -hmm. in having and each revision uh, this is the fourth revision it was helped greatly by Square One publisher editor the editing of it really improved it the organization of it improved it and I've only had comments from doctors who've enjoyed it and uh, like the rules. I've had no patient tell me what they thought about the book. So it's his audience and uh, market has been doctors. Mm, okay. Huh. Well, I, <clears throat> here's what's kind of interesting is my, my son is a, a, literally a resident at um, IU Medical School, and he's in his third year of four years of uh, pediatrics and uh, internal medicine. And oddly enough, he does a podcast just for residents. And um, if it's okay with you, I'm going to introduce him to your book and recommend that he actually interview you and send it to all residents across the country. Because honestly, this is exactly what they need to hear. I mean, this is, is, it's the perfect content I mean, you're dealing with the Hippocratic Oath, what it really means. Um, I mean, you're drilling down to this is why you became a medical physician. I mean, that's what I read in this book. I, I might be missing it, but I, I think so. Yes, absolutely. I appreciate that. The, uh, the mindset of a doctor has to be at primary care very different from a specialty. And especially what is going on in this specialty organ that I need to deal with. Mm-hmm. Primary care doctor is got the, the entire array of all diseases. Yeah. yeah. And you have to not care whether it's psychological, physical, psychological, spiritual, self-inflicted. You got to not care what the cause is. Why do you care what somebody's got? Mm-hmm. Why should you care what they have? All you care about is being helpful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I yeah. agree. So okay. we're, as always, we run out of time before we get to ask all of our questions, but I, I would like to sort of close out with one last question, which is of all of the rules in your book, do you have a particular favorite rule or one that you found to be most beneficial to you? I've got several that I can, I've written those down ahead of time. Yeah. My favorite one is, and this is a little complicated, what the mind cannot process is relegated to the body. Mm. What the mind cannot assimilate and figure out is going to end up a physical symptom. That is brilliant. That's powerful. Very well said. I that I think that is right on too. Hmm. I think that is right on because that is and that makes sense about uh, you know you've apparently assisted uh, about fifty million divorces now and uh, <laughs> no just kidding. <laughs> I, I'm thinking you probably had those divorce attorneys just handing you cards all day. It's like now how bad is it in? Isn't it bad? <laughs> but really it is. When you're in an impossible scenario that every day you roll over and you must face an onslaught of, um, in some cases, just evil, rotten, nasty people. And 
it eats away at your core as a as a human being. It really does. And some just aren't bad people. They're just difficult. <laughs> Right, like me, right. my my wife was nice enough to let me know that I'm difficult most every day, and uh, that always helps. I can attest to that. No, <laughs> That's right. No wonder right, she's got right. that pain in her back. Uh, now I know. <laughs> oh, nice. Okay, so um, as Amy said, uh, this this uh, we, we were uh, running out of time, and and, and their, your book can be located where? Can can they buy it on Amazon? Where can they buy it? It's available on Amazon. It's available in most large bookstores. And it's available at uh, squareonepublishers.com. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Great. Lots of places to get it. And I, as again, I'm not a, a practicing physician, but having read it from a patient perspective, and I know that's not, I'm not necessarily your, your target. I, there's lots of great stuff in there for everybody. Yeah. Just to better understand, you know, healthcare and how you might want to suggest your doctors treat you or how to interact with them so from a patient perspective i think it was very powerful too yeah thank you very much i I failed to mention this book is called the little book all the other editions called a little book so this last edition is the little book of doctor's rules that's the fourth 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 version okay all right well we want to first of all thank you for coming on and and i have enjoyed this and i hope i've been helpful you you really have you really have so the little book of doctor rules whether you're a patient or a physician hope you pick it up we want to thank dr medor for coming on today and joining us and we're just uh, happy to have you uh, listen to our Humarian Health podcast. Um, you can uh, dial them up at the humarian.com site, as well as many other educational pieces. We want to thank you for being here again, and we just enjoyed being back with you. And may God bless. Amy Baker, Dr. Sean Bensinger. Humarian Health Podcast. Spilling our guts. For the well-being of yours. That's right. Thanks for having the guts to listen to the Humarian Health Podcast. If you have things you'd like to gut check, send us an email at gutcheck at humarian.com.